This Quietcast podcast is brought to you by Ideas Digest. In a world dominated by fake news and cancel culture. Oh, sounding a little bit, you know, right-wing conservative. Fake news, cancel culture. So okay. let's reframe. Fair. In a world dominated by intolerance, bigotry, and ignorance, mm. can we... I think that might be going too far left-wing progressive. Just keep going. All right. The Ideas Digest podcast is all about exploring different viewpoints and challenging your own beliefs. In each episode, we flip a coin to determine which side of a controversial societal issue we will debate. We then compete to persuade someone to change their mind. Insert montage here. If it lands on heads, you shouldn't be a fan of Jordan Peterson. Trump is not guilty. Coin flip, tails, and I'm pro porn, baby. Let me take someone yeah. who wants to have kids and tell them why this is a bad idea. Yeah. And then here comes along Andrew Tate. Escape your echo chamber each week at Ideas Digest, everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. This podcast is about provocative conversations with beautiful thinkers about topics that matter and the stories that have helped them reframe their lives. Grab something cozy or put on your walking shoes and let's reframe. Growing up in the 90s as a teenager and young adult, I was very much immersed in purity culture. As an avid church and youth group attendee, I frequently visited my local Christian bookstore, where I would pick up books by James Dobson, Max Lucado, and Joshua Harris. Funny looking back that I actually never read anything written by women. But I would read these authors looking for guidance and how to live my life. I knew I wanted to be good. I'm a fairly anxious person, and so if I was good, then I thought less bad things would happen to me. I think I took this attitude on as my family was falling apart. Be the good girl, stay quiet, don't make a fuss, and remain pure. Keep all desires that you want under the surface. This mentality led me into all jobs related to ministry, to seminary, and working in the church, and then becoming a pastor's wife. I often jokingly told people that I wanted to write a book called, Shh, I'm the Pastor's Wife, as my life turned and I became a sex educator. So when I saw the book, The Woman They Wanted, by Shannon Harris, who was married to Joshua Harris, the author of the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, the book I read to keep me good and pure, I needed to read it. I also wanted to talk to her. And today I get to do that. Shannon Harris is a singer, actor, composer, and writer. She grew up involved in music and theater, performing, singing, and writing until she met and married best-selling author Joshua Harris. Since her departure from conservative Christianity and the conclusion of her marriage, she has re-evaluated ideas society takes for granted about women and their contributions. Now Shannon has returned to pursuing a career in the performing arts. She is currently writing a one-woman show and released her first album under the name Sharon Bond. She lives in Vancouver, British Columbia. Shannon, I'm so happy that you are here on my show today. Thanks for having me, Kara. 
I just recall looking through Instagram and seeing the cover of your book, uh, the woman they wanted, and then seeing the subtitle. And I was like, I must read this book. And then when I saw that you had written it, it like took on a whole new level because I've, I've been following as since I, you know, am a Christian woman and a sex educator and was deeply influenced by purity culture and then also by Josh's book. Uh, I was like, wow, <laughs> like, I know what it feels like to be a pastor's wife. And then when I saw that you wrote that, I was like, this has to be next level. <laughs> this has to be next level of what I have experienced. And I was like, I just need to read this book. I hope I delivered. <laughs> no, you <didn't. laughs> I No pressure. But. No, that <laughs> no, was... No, it was just insightful. And I have to say there was moments where you had just certain sentences that I just immediately underlined. And I was like, dang, like I just like hit you in a way that was very real and honest and vulnerable. And I was like, yes, absolutely. This is exactly right. So one thing I think that I noticed the most from your book is that so much of it revolves around control. And there is this element of constant denial of self, like that I kept hearing, like you had to just keep putting yourself away. Yeah. And that was, you know, and then you think about that being instilled in you by this institution that is supposed to be celebrating God, our creator of who's supposed to love us unconditionally and have us live into who we're supposed to be. And yeah. then to know that this is this institution is just completely telling you to be everything you're not. Mm -hmm. And we now know that all of that stuff is abuse. Right. Essentially. Yeah. So then I'm wondering what, what was it like for you just writing this book and seeing that being laid out for you as you were writing? It was very it was both very challenging and also therapeutic mm -hmm. um, I would definitely say that I was still processing my own story while I was writing mm -hmm. there were things I was realizing especially more along the lines of my marriage I, I don't think I fully even realized how the impact of that was on me until I was actually out of my marriage. Hmm. Um, and, and that time that I was writing was actually the first few years that I was on my own. So hmm. it's interesting, but, um, but yeah, to look back and, and see that the church systematically took away my authority, yeah. my autonomy and my agency all things that I had growing up mm -hmm. and I, not only did they impose that, but I accepted it. The, the regret I feel over that is still quite immense. Oh, sure. And so, you know, anytime I'm, I'm thinking about it, talking about it, processing it, I have to kind of 
I have to really talk through that with myself and remember where I was at that time and, mm -hmm. you know, speak words of kindness and love to myself. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I was very naive. I gave, I gave my trust to this church without question. And that was a mistake because it's a relationship. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, any relationship that we have, a husband and a wife, parent to child, a human to a church, it's still a relationship. And to, in order for it to be healthy, it has to go both ways. And it just didn't. Well, I feel like, and from my, like from my experiences, when I've gone to certain evangelical churches and things, especially, so it was in college, right? I was like church shopping and stuff, but even in, um, church place, shopping. I was, I was like, well, I'm just going to try all them out <laughs> to see, I just need to see. <laughs> um, but even within, you know, certain the school that I went to and their, their chapel, like it's very enticing. They offer this sense of, I feel like what it shows is this sense of belonging. And I feel yes. actually, I start thinking about the fact that I think these churches are narcissistic mm -hmm. because they give you what you initially need in the yeah. very beginning. Mm -hmm. And it's just like this undercutting in a way that you can miss you know, Absolutely. you can feel it. There's like an element where you can sense it and feel it, but it also goes unnoticed until I think very later on down the road. Right. And so it's like they, they recognize that need that we need, that we have for attachment and belonging. And they mm -hmm. just like hook you in that way. I completely agree with that. I, that resonates with me entirely. It's yeah. And I, and it's, I don't know about you, but it's hard to, it's hard to understand why and, and, and the why, mm -hmm. why is it like that? Why, why, yes. yeah. why, why do they not see the kind of bait and switch mm -hmm. and see that that's wrong? Yeah. But it does, it does very much attract you in the beginning and attracted me. Um, I think community is, it, it just draws you in and it gives you this immediate community mm -hmm. of people. And oftentimes there are wonderful people at these churches. There are wonderful people who I'm still in touch with mm -hmm. at my church, as unhealthy as I think the leadership was. Right. So many wonderful people. And so the thing you have you know, the thing some people may not realize is that for me, I was caught up in those relationships on the ground level. I wasn't thinking to mistrust or distrust the leaders. Mm -hmm. I was engaging with just normal everyday people who were vibrant and wanted, seemingly wanted to help me grow in my relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you're right. I, I, I sometimes have this, um, this idea that I, if you've ever seen the Maslow's law of needs triangle yeah, mm -hmm. and where, you know, the base level, it's like, you have to have the base levels 
to grow to the top of the triangle. So it starts with safety and then it goes to, um, these are your different needs. Like you have to have your shelter and your food and your um, basic needs met before you can even think about things like love or connection or recognition, mm -hmm. achievement, these things. Right. Anyway, I have this, one day I sat and I wrote what I thought was the Maslow's triangle of church, which is literally for women. I think it's the opposite. Mm. It's like you start in on this, um, this really, you know, you kind of come in, you get saved, you buy a Bible, you <laughs> growing in God. It's all about that. And then, but then there are levels. The next level is, well, now you're going to serve. Now you're going to buy a study Bible. Like, I remember mm. that being a really big deal when I got a study Bible Yeah. and now you're going to memorize scripture. And then later you're, maybe you give up your dreams. You, you give up your career and all of these things are seen as commitment and you're, you're reinforced that this is good. Mm. Your life is actually getting smaller and smaller. I think if you're a woman. Yeah, especially that's, that's but really also, fascinating. But I've also seen this happen to men. It's not just happening to women. Mm -hmm. um, I have a musical, uh, an artist friend, and he very much fell under the hierarchy and felt like he could not, he could not grow. So it's not just women, but I think in certain conservative spheres, it's much more damaging to women. Oh yeah. That's really fascinating that you took the time to just like <laughs> think about how that plays out with the mass laws. I can never say it mass laws laws, right? I don't know. Right. You're <laughs> the always... one with the psychology degree. I know. I know. <laughs> this is why that's embarrassing. <laughs> Maslow's I Maslow's Maslow's law. Maslow's, law. Maslow's hierarchy of needs is what it's called. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think it's a good resource because you can look at it. Every woman can look at that and say, mm -hmm. do I have these things if I'm alone? Because some of those things you seem to have, but you only actually have them as long as you stay in the structure yes. and as long as you, or you stay in your marriage. But what I like to see is women look at that and say, do I have these things apart from any structure that has been, that I have agreed to, or it's been um, imposed on me. I think that structure is huge because I had, I was, when we were talking before, this is what I experienced growing up as when I was in the structure of being the good young woman who, you know, followed the rules, who was quiet, who did all the things. I had such wonderful experiences and, you know, my church was a little different where for, for me, they actually pushed me to be a leader which was really great. Like, so that was like a wonderful experience, but a lot of that, you know, dealt with my youth minister at the time and who saw me struggling at home and who was like, Carrie, you have more to offer this world and would push me to do that. So kudos to him, Ken Grant, shout out. So he was great. <laughs> but what I noticed though, is that the church at large, and this is what it means. Like when I went to seminary, 
I started opening up more of like, wait a minute, I am a woman who is, was a dancer and felt God primarily through my body. Like mm-hmm. I experienced, you know, sacred dance or just any sort of movement. And that's where I felt the closest to God and wanted to bring more of that into worship experiences. And in the Lutheran world, we're very cerebral and stoic. Mm-hmm. And then when I started studying sexuality, I was like, oh, okay. So now we need to be incorporating sexuality conversations that are real into mm-hmm. this because our spirituality and sexuality are the, like, they're not separate. They right. coexist together. And it was like, when I started moving into that and then started to recognize my own strength or that I had more of a voice than I realized, that was when opportunities for me in the church started to close. Where I struggled with something called candidacy that we go through in the Lutheran church and all these other things. And I just felt, and like I had been approved for this call that I was going to do right Um, But it took me like three times to get approved for it. And then I never got a call. Um, And so then I just decided, you know, I know what my call is. It's to be a sex educator and do these things. I don't need the church to tell me I'm okay. Right. And so I decided not to like proceed forward. But I was like, isn't this interesting Mm. that when I'm not just being the cookie cutter, of the what they want isn't there the the acceptance right isn't there it's not there it's it's yeah it's there so long as you work within the system mm-hmm. and even then i i don't i think often as even as you said you had this positive church experience but then they held you back there was a resistance to to letting you maybe it took you three times as long, Mm -hmm. you know, taking three to four times as long as it would have if you were a man. Yeah. Yeah. Frustrating. It's crazy. And I also wonder, and so I'm curious in the evangelical church, it, because I just see so much of this control stuff that's happening. I'm like, where's Jesus? (laughs) Like, do they talk about Jesus? You know, like, what is your experience? with the Jesus, with Jesus in, within your church? I, I think this is just my personal opinion. I'm not a theologian or an expert, but I think many churches are confused about, and I'll just frame it like this as confused about what is the cornerstone of Christianity Mm -hmm. is to me, I see two going on and they conflict. I see Jesus is supposed to be the cornerstone. Mm-hmm. He's, he's supposed to be the foundation. But then oftentimes in, in the Bible, there's there's all these, there's the Bible and the word of God and they, they don't match up. Yeah. I My personal opinion is churches need to decide Are they, is Mm -hmm. Jesus the cornerstone? Because if he is, it's love, acceptance, kindness, compassion. It's pretty simple. Right. If it's the Bible, okay, fine. But you cannot have both. The Bible has all these 
structures and rules. And there's a lot of, obviously there's a lot of disagreement about that, but I do think at the end of the day, there's some, there's some conflict between those two, Jesus mm -hmm. and the Bible. Yeah. I definitely think there's churches that make the Bible, the idol of what, you know, their, of what mm -hmm. their beliefs are, that everything comes down to that. I don't know. The, the Bible is an easy fallback for shaping the church, how you want it to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can find sure. support for just about anything. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. And especially if we decide to not look at, I think that ancient languages and the interpretation and the historical con con concept and yeah. Yes. So yeah, it's hard. It's hard. You also mentioned within your book, a lot of the body cues that you had experienced um, mm -hmm. just little moments throughout your time in ministry. And yeah. then oftentimes, you know, we, we are also taught to like, not always pay attention to our body cues, right? Because of um, just how the body has been talked about in church. Mm -hmm. So can you talk to why you think the church sets us up to ignore the body? Well, <laughs> I don't feel like I'm an expert um, on any of these. These are such great questions and they're big issues. So hopefully your listeners will understand that. I, I think obviously the culture of patriarchy comes with it, this long history where women have been disrespected, misunderstood, mischaracterized, and feared. Yeah. So for me, that's the why um, that, that kind of drives why the body. And I mean, I could speak a lot more. I think, I think there, you've said it earlier, there's more of an emphasis. There's this, there's this idea in the church that the body is bad and shameful mm -hmm. and things of the spirit and not of the earth and matter are, are better. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think the fear is wrapped in that, up in that. I think there's fear of women, there's fear of sexuality. Um, and I think as a result, these things that seem kind of what I call wild get contained so that people mm -hmm. can feel safer. Um, I think women are powerful. Women yes. are so powerful. We are the life givers, we are the future of any community. Mm -hmm. We are a commodity. Mm -hmm. And I and I think women's sexuality is incredibly powerful. So I think there's just so much history of that. I think that power is obvious. And somewhere along the line, it just got, you know, skewed, washed. Oh yeah. So that, it could be controlled and it I makes like, sense to me now. Yeah. I like that you said wild. <laughs> that choice of word. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I think I often think about like what if we were given permission to live into that wild nature? Because I do feel I actually feel like there's this 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 wild nature, I think, in all women that if we were allowed to just tap into that, yeah. you know, like we would do some amazing things and 
And I wish that now, you know, I keep, when I teach young girls, right, we're also taught to be pitted against each other. And that is where so much too of our power gets diminished. And so I'm like, I've been trying to teach my daughter. I'm like, you know, your friend can have everything. And so can you, and you guys can work together to make that happen. Like, like what if we continue to try to just help each other being like, there's enough for you. There's enough for you. We can build this. We can build together because we, I think subconsciously too, are forced to, um, because we know that in our society, we are seeing, we are less, less than air quotes, mm-hmm. less than. And so I think subconsciously, no matter even like your orientation, I feel like sometimes we seek men's approval. Yeah. So we can have like this sense of worth. And so in so doing that, we also then diminish one another. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the saddest thing. It is. It's really sad because w- women are, we are our own ticket out of this. We have to, I think, all really come alongside each other and say, you know, we've all been diminished in ways. And so we've got to, we've got to start letting each other, if it means that someone's going to surpass me, I want, I want that, even if it's hard, mm-hmm. you know, cause my experience in church was that I wasn't allowed to surpass anyone. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think, I think I'm a very powerful person. And I think that that sh- show was shining through And so it was even extra. Mm-hmm. And sadly, I was naive and, um, I didn't, I wasn't in my power at that point, but yeah, I think it's really, really true and really sad, but I think we can, we can change. <laughs> yeah. So what would you say to a woman if she was feeling these body cues or like having this, I always like think of like a scratching <laughs> inside, you know, like this little, almost like a fingernail clawing at us being like, Hey, you know, what would you say to, to someone who's feeling that? I would say to listen to it. I think, you know, I really believe that I knew all along that this situation was so unhealthy for me. And, and now I've come to really lean into trusting my body knows, you know, it's like when you walk into a room and where you meet someone and you're just like, you just feel something, mm-hmm. but you don't know why. And then maybe later you find out something or, or maybe you never do, but I just think you can trust that feeling. Maybe it's not going to be perfect 99% of the time. I mean, a hundred percent of the time, but it's going to be way more accurate than not trusting it. Right. And I think, I think I talk about it in my book as a compass. It's an inner compass that is inside every woman and it's tailored just for them and it also knows like where they've been where they are now and it knows where they're headed it's like this compass knows it all Mm. because none of us are on the same journey and so you know my my healthy past shapes where I am today it shapes my future 
somebody who had abuse in their childhood has a different journey, even if we had the same exact experience at church. So yeah. what, what they're going to need at any given moment in time is going to be different. And yeah. that ultimately, I think, is what that compass is pointing toward, is what you need mm-hmm. to, be, to be healthy, to be you. Yeah. Yeah. I like that you said it's individualized because we all, yeah, that's true. Like we can have similar experiences, but it's based off of what we had before then. Yeah, Yeah, that's very true. So I think it was very clear that there's this essence of you, you know, I, from reading, I'm like, I could, I want you to know, I guess, like as a reader, you could hear and, and still feel the strength that you have. I think like as a woman, like I could feel it. Um, and I, and I felt like the entire time she was fighting for what she felt was wrong. Um, but I also believe that at certain points, right? Like we have to work at where we are. Why am I crying? I know we're just a mess here. (laughs) We're supposed to cry. It's fine. We're good. But I feel like we have our own timing, right? Like there's also this element, I think of, we have to go through things and also like be reminded of our own strength. Cause sometimes I think that gets, you know, muddled, especially when we're in these relationships or positions that are telling us how we're supposed to be. Yeah. And what a scary thing to go outside of that. Yeah. It's so scary. So scary. And so when was that moment when it was clear for you that you were going to choose yourself? <laughs> yeah. When I saw that question, I was like, ah, I know. <laughs> it's so difficult for me to pin down one specific moment because this transformation for me took place over years. Yeah. And I was ignoring my inner compass over and over and over again mm-hmm. and trying to you know re make it all work <laughs> somehow but usually that meant me accommodating mm. um, so so the preface is it took years and then there were key moments inside those years of course and then there was intense, there was an intense season, I think, when I was really like that. So backing up, the point I would say really helped and changed something for me was when Josh and I went to get counseling, um, and I mentioned this in the book, we went to get counseling to decide whether we were going to stay in ministry. And I was kind of going along for the visit, right? Because mm-hmm. it's about Josh and whether he's still going to be a pastor. But our church had kind of fallen apart, not kind of, it had fallen apart big time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very messy, very public. And at this point, I had already, I was already a crumbling human being. But mm-hmm. When we went to to meet with these counselors, it was 
it was the first time I felt seen as a separate person from my husband. Mm. Hmm. 15 years. Wow. My identity was completely from the moment I met Josh swept up in who I was in relation to him. Right. And when I sat down there, I saw that suddenly there was no question. Mm. How are you doing? How are you doing? You were Shannon, you were Josh. In every, in the evangelical world, I was Josh's wife or his wife. Right. I mean, I kid you not, there were so many settings where I'm not even sure I was introduced as Mm. my name. Mm. Yeah. So the impact of that was huge. And also the impact of the, the question that I left that it was a whole weekend long of counseling. And the question that stood out to me was, what do you want? And that was the other thing that I had not felt free to ask since mm-hmm. I joined the church. Yeah. What do I want? Because in the very beginning of my church days, I could have told you, I want a music career. I want a career on Broadway or on stage. Mm-hmm. But immediately that got shut down because, you know, Hollywood is worldly. Music, you know, that just, that's a whole thing. Yeah. So that question really set me, I don't know, it just, it, that was where I started to give myself more permission. I didn't arrive at permission yet, but I was, it was, it validated for me something that I had been feeling for years by this time, which was that my dream had not died and that my calling had not died, mm-hmm. which has to do with music and the stage. And I've had that feeling since I was three years old. It wasn't something I ever drummed up. I remember being in Montessori school and feeling that. Mm. So this was before I'd ever even done anything. Yeah. How great. I mean, I think there is a moment when somebody sees you as an individual when for so long, like it's, it's almost not like an over, it's like you were, you were like you said, Josh's wife, but it was like, you were plus one, (laughs) you know, it was like plus one. (laughs) And it's like, uh, what a breath of fresh air to be like, and Shannon. Yes. The other thing I learned in that session, are you familiar with the Enneagram at all? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. So I love the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. And And part of that counseling session was for us to take the professional test. Oh, nice. And I came out as an eight, a very eight, which any of your listeners is actually the most masculine traded um, number on the Enneagram. It's the, it's the person, it's the Donald Trump (laughs) at at his, at its worst. It's, it's a Donald Trump (laughs) Um, at its best. It's like, I'm not sure. Uh, (laughs) Wonderful, strong leader. I was oh. like, we need to find the best for you, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, so you can have that reference. Yeah. I think Barbara Walters might be an eight. Susan oh. Sarandon is an eight. Oh, nice. I think Pink might be an eight. Oh, I love so her. Kind of people. 
So that was really also um, quite transformative. It was a piece of myself that it put a massive piece of clarity into the puzzle for me mm -hmm. um, about why I shut down because there was zero place for an eight, like maybe a two that, that's a helping yeah. person. A right. two might not be healthy, but they will find a place to live out their gifts. Mm -hmm. An eight woman has no place. No, it's not happening no. not in my world. It wasn't happening in my world. So I think what happened to me is I actually completely shut down. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, it's like, I think you individually already, you know, from me just meeting you now, you have like a vibrancy and you have this like go-getter kind of, you know, aura. <laughs> and like, and that is what an eight does. It just, it goes for what it wants. It has strong ideas and initiatives and wants to do those things. And so, yeah. So I felt like, yeah, I think as I was trying to live out this, this identity of this other woman, this good woman, I was just, it was like, there was this inner fight inside me all the time, which was exhausting to live oh. like. Yeah. I so. mean, of course you would shut down from that. I feel also, um, one of the things for me, reading your book, I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> when you talked about, you know, the fact that you had to be modest and constantly looking at what you were wearing. And I love that you have one chapter, one part of your book that's just called nipples. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, as a dancer, I experienced that too, when I would dance. And the only thing people commented on is like, oh, you could see her nipples through the leotard. <laughs> I'm like, okay. But, um, Sorry, I have nipples. Yeah, sorry. Uh, everyone else does too. <laughs> well, I know. Why are men, men have nipples that show in their shirts? Why is that okay? Who knows? Why are they not wearing nipple covers? Seriously. Pasties <laughs> for men. <laughs> right? But one of the things, one of the things you were talking about, like as a pastor's wife, that I also feel deeply is when people look at how you're worshiping or you're not the phrase, you don't look like you're worshiping, which I have had people say to me, which just makes me furious. Cause I'm also like, uh, I feel like the fact that you just said that comment means that you yourself <laughs> are not worshiping my friends. So true. <laughs> Cause you if doing? you are paying attention to this, like such a good point, what yeah. are you doing? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, what do you want to say? Like, I feel like there needs to be like a public service announcement for the emphasis on watching us as pastor's wife and then making pastors that, as you said in your book, demigods. So what would be your public service announcement around this? <laughs> I honestly, I had a lot of trouble with this question. It's blank. Um, I don't, I would have, I have to think about that. It was such a good question. I definitely think um, the expectation is that leaders are modeling. They're they're supposed to be, they're set up as models, which basically, I mean, that's why I use a mannequin on my cover of my book, because that's uh -huh. what it felt like. Like I had to be this fake model of yes. something that wasn't real. 
Yes. And so that might be part A of it. I think one thing I experienced was I didn't feel seen or known for who I was. Mm -hmm. So remembering that, I mean, this, this demigod culture, this leader culture is unhealthy. Yeah. Nobody, I think there's this expect, this, this belief that I guess it must stem from believing pastors and their wives are called or something. It's this over-spiritualizing of this role, Mm -hmm. which then elevates it in people's minds like that this person is chosen by God. Maybe it's, maybe it's unconscious, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's unhealthy. It's damaging to everyone because it's not true. Mm -hmm. We're all on the same plane. Mm -hmm. So I'm just rambling. No, we're human beings, right? Like we're humans (laughs) and we make mistakes and we're tired. And we're not, you know, I, I think I had a line in my book. I did have a line in my book that said something like people thought we were wonderful, but for all the wrong reasons, Mm. you know, like I knew inside me, I have all these things that I am and people thought I was wonderful for X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm just like, the reasons I like myself are, are over here. Yeah. It's nothing to do with what I, I can tell you think right now. <laughs> yes. Yes. And that's and, and also that it's a business. These big churches are a business and oh, whether yeah. or not anyone wants to admit that, I just want to say that these are businesses. Mm-hmm. The moment these things get big and unwieldy, you know, and even small churches, I, I mean, there's a lot of administration work that goes into this, right? And I, and that's the other thing. I'm like, they are not teaching administration work in seminary. Like when we went to seminary, you know, it's like when you become a head pastor, you are now in charge of all these like financial decisions and certain things like that, that some of us are not trained to make those decisions. And that's why we have in the Lutheran world, like councils and things like that, but still it's kind of like we put people in these positions to, you know, um, run a business to care for everyone's emotional needs that they haven't gotten met in their own homes. So they bring to church and then they expect you to like take care of it. And we're supposed to meet people in their grief. And then we're supposed to meet every generation's ideas of what a worship experience should look like. (laughs) You know, like I see, I see the hardships and know the hardships that pastors go through to play all of these roles, yeah. you know, but I think it also is dependent on the environment that they are, you know, actively being a pastor in because everyone has these different experiences. Right. Yeah. But I also see then this expectation too, that's placed on people in ministry where um, inevitably, I just feel like we're set, they're set up to fail in some aspects because nobody is superhuman. Exactly. And I think if we continue to expect our leaders to be superhuman and then to sit in the pews acting like we have nothing going on in our lives yeah. or anything wrong, it's just like, what's, what's the point of God? <laughs> you know, what's the point 
of God and Jesus and this grace that we've been offered because. Yeah. And I, and I did experience both, you know, there, there definitely were times when, you know, there was real vulnerability, but it's, I think it's bigger than even my church. Cause I, I, bigger than the small church. It's like this more of this idea of who pastors and wives are supposed to be. It's like this role that I can't wait for Beth Allison Barr to write her book. She's writing a book about the pastor's wife and the role of the pastor's wife and the history of that, because I do think that's also wrapped up in it. You mm. know, there's this passing along of what this role is supposed to be like. Yeah. And again, it goes back to this model thing this mannequin thing which isn't real no mm -hmm. one can live like that mm -hmm. I was just gonna say I did feel loved and supported by my church had I been able to ask for what I really needed I don't think that was their fault but yeah and if I had said this is what I really need I have no doubt that I would have been loved and supported mm -hmm. I might not have I might have been kicked out <laughs> But there would be a, you know, I felt loved and supported to the, to the degree people could. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not free to share our real needs. So that's the problem. Mm -hmm. You're not free to say, I'm falling apart. Yeah. And what are you going to, what's going to happen? Nothing happens. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think I was um, editing a podcast yesterday that talked all about what, are the parameters that you need in a relationship and like essentially naming what your needs and wants are. And I really feel that so many of us don't even understand what our needs and wants are or how to ask for them, because I feel like we've just been given a story and of, of what relationships are supposed to look like and be. And we're just kind of mimicking those stories to the best of our ability. And then we're within the story and we're like, oh, <laughs> like, yeah. hmm, is this, is this how it's supposed to go? Because this doesn't always feel right. Or this, you know, I feel like something's missing or how, how am I supposed to say this and know that maybe it's going to be met with hurt? And is it okay to speak those words out loud? Right. You know what I mean? Like, do. Yeah. I see this being played out in every and all the relationships that I see in my life. And I think so many of us in our adulthood are talking about that, like, oh, have you been instructed and in how to do this? And so and are I feel you talking about relationships in the church specifically? No, I'm talking, I'm sorry, about romantic relationships and, you know, asking for our needs and wants there because that plays out then into other relationships, right? As, so my, what I'm trying to say is, I don't think we have been given the models or, or the know-how of being able to ask the questions we need to ask, mm -hmm. know what our needs and wants are. Yeah. And so that's like a long standing process of adulthood is being like, oh, <laughs> what does yeah. that mean? You know? I totally agree with that. I actually just bought a book last week about, I was sitting in my counseling session and I started to cry and I and I realized it was because I felt like I didn't know how to get what I want mm -hmm. and it dawned on me just what you said I was like I don't know how to ask for things mm -hmm. that is crazy 
So I bought this book and literally I've asked for like three things, minor things since then it's, it's totally transforming to realize that I can, I can ask for things and it's okay. If someone can't give it to me, Hmm. then I can decide what that means for me. Yeah. I think it's true. We don't, we don't know how to ask for things. We're, we're not really empowered. We're not often empowered to ask for things. Mm-hmm. And perhaps our experiences when we have asked haven't gone so well, or, mm-hmm. or we in the church were expected to be humble and, and modest, which means you don't put yourself forward and you don't ask for what you want, which is really just a devaluing of who the person is, you know, you know, <laughs> what you want matters because it's part of who you are. Yeah. When you're angry, it matters because something has hurt you mm-hmm. or something is important to you. That's, we get angry because something's important to us. Right. And so when the church just says, well, all anger is bad. Anyway, I'm going on a, off on a tangent. <laughs> no, this is great because I feel like I've been recognizing I'm, I'm working on writing stuff for kids and around emotions and recognizing that it's information right? Like the emotions that like with anger or with jealousy, it's information we are getting about something else that's going on. And, and I'm learning too, that like the emotion is like the seed that's been planted in our, in the soil of our soul, right? Like here's the emotion and that has its own universe, right? Cause when you think of soil, there's a lot going on. <laughs> so right. it's like this whole environment inside of us that has emotion. And then it, when it comes up and it comes up as a feeling that we're having, then it's like, so what is that trying to tell us and where, what is that igniting from within and how do we tend to that? That's a great metaphor. Yeah. Analogy. Thank you. Yeah. It's just, it's like, I have to make things simple so that I can understand them too. Like, what is that supposed to be? So, um, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's so good. I think that's so good. Thank you. We don't, we don't have to shut down our emotions. We should, we want to be curious about them and find out what, what they are saying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you were, married to a person who wrote this book around purity and not, you know, kissing, dating, goodbye and things like that, that made Josh very famous to go around and do lots of speaking gigs and all that stuff. And it was pinnacle to the purity movement. Talk to me about, I, if you can, a little bit about how that affected perceptions then around sexuality, you think for the church. And then for how the large or for you church and you <laughs> in a compact little, I'm just kidding. Like, you know, Let me words, start my book here. Three words or less <laughs> <laughs> chapters right here. If I can find it. No, seriously. Sometimes I'm like, why don't I just open my book and just read from it. I mean, you can, I, mean, I won't do that, but uh, if I can find it. I think it was pretty well compacted. You can't find it, but sorry, I repeat the question. 
basically what, like how did what is your opinion now from from I mean like I feel like so much of like of all the things where you've traveled with Josh and stuff there is like this whole element around purity yeah. and then also you wrote about your wedding day and and yeah. how there was parts that was very upsetting for you around that and so like where what you is can, it you can just ask me what whatever it is I, I, I don't know like I'm just like how what did that do for you in terms of because that's a whole that's a different level of being like watched yeah that's a different level of being watched I guess is really what I'm saying yes I wish I could find this quote because I cannot remember it verbatim there was a quote I came across about how someone who is being feels they are being watched cannot truly live or be free Mm. and it so resonated with me so it resonated with me so deeply Mm. I did feel incredibly watched for both both in the greater evangelical world and also in my church and i think part of that is my own i i am a performer so you know i want to be honest with that 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 that's part of who i am and so i can't discount you know i can't blame it all on this culture but certainly the whole model piece, you know. But they, I feel there's a diff. if I can say there's a difference, because when you're a performer, you're consenting to being watched. Yeah. And you're giving something like you're right. giving the thing that you want to give. You're sharing right. part of you that you want to share. There's a big difference. So yeah. you're right. There's a huge difference. I just think it played into it was it was extremely uncomfortable and debilitating. I think it added to my shutting downness, you know, that state where I just, I felt afraid. I felt like I couldn't mess up. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was a very real fear. I had, we had, we did have threats that we could get our husbands fired. Mm. So the, the anxiety I had was, when I met my counselor that I've been working with for three years, she said, you've had anxiety so long, you think it's normal. Oh, wow. So that was, that was really hard. Mm-hmm. But, but I got to meet a lot of people, you know, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna say something good about it, I did get to meet a lot of people. And I, I think it honed a skill in me now, you know, mm-hmm. because I, because I observed, I, I kind of joke that I spent 20, 20 years observing people. Yeah. It's a skill I've now really honed. So mm-hmm. that can help in other situations, right? <laughs> like, yes. So we kind of talked a little bit about this before with like romantic relationships, but <clears throat> based on your experience and stuff, and um, I wonder too, like with your observations, if you've observed how people are and and what they present, right? Because I think part of that observing is you're seeing what people are presenting and what maybe they're not presenting. Mm -hmm. So within that, then when, if we talk about romantic relationships, where do you think as humans in the Western American society gets it wrong? I think it goes back to emphasizing I think what we need to do is emphasize healthy relationships in our communities Mm -hmm. over a particular structure 
we need to prioritize the health and well-being of everyone in our community units. Mm-hmm. Me, that's what needs to happen. That is more important than, you know, I'll use my own marriage as an example, as a painful example. I would say we are all healthier now that our family has split apart. That does not mean that that was not incredibly painful or that I did not have a time when I thought this is the worst thing on earth that could possibly happen because I certainly did. Yeah. But had I, had we um, continued on in that structure, everyone in the, in that structure was not able to be healthy. Yeah. And that's the hard thing, right? Because I think there's, we know when there's a structure that we want to maintain, but when the structure itself is not maintainable, is that the right word I want to use? I think so. Where then you have to have that hard decision, right? Because it's a loss. It's full of grief. Completely. But yeah, then something else can be, can bloom from that. Right. Right. But it's like facing that and, and moving into that, like takes a lot of courage and bravery. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, yeah. it's so hard. Yes. It's so hard. I feel like I want to ask you if this is okay. Like, what are you really proud of right now? I'm just getting all choked up. I, I think I'm just proud of I love being independent and I'm not even fully there. (laughs) I can't say I'm fully independent. I still relying on people. um, And I'm so grateful for the help I'm receiving, but I'm really proud to be at a place where I'm trusting myself Mm -hmm. and where I'm learning to make decisions Mm -hmm. and I'm learning to say the uncomfortable things and speak speak what I need, speak my truth, ask for the things it's yeah. Sorry. No, it's okay. Huge. It is huge. It's amazing. Yeah. Go ahead. I just think, I mean, like for, I think women hearing this, like, right. Like there's so many women who I think feel trapped still. And, you know, maybe, and, you know, men too, like, we can't put gender into all of this, but right. um, all humans at some point sometimes feel like they don't have choices or they're trapped in from the stories they've been given. Um, yeah. And so much of it comes around a sense of belonging, you know, and attachment. And that's what I be, I keep listening to Gaber Mate. Do you listen to Gaber Mate? No. So he's a, he's a, this physician that everyone in the mental health world now is going over, getting excited about, but he talks about when we just, one of the things he has said is when we choose attachment over authenticity, mm-hmm. that's when we get sick. And I was like, what, you know, yes. when, when that's we true. constantly hold on to that, that's when, you know, and they can recognize um, they also did this study around some illness and they knew the other thing I was reading is like, they knew who was going to pass away before 
um, based on a certain illness on who was the nicest. So like people who were continuously like really nice um, oh, because it, were, because of were how the they were being nice to other people, because they were talking about niceness isn't always authentic, right? And so it also means like we're not asking for our needs or wants. We are putting things down, which can cause our bodies to get ill, which causes inflammation and things like this. And I'm like, what? Like, it's just fascinating to me yeah. to learn some of this stuff. And I think that's like, I'm trying to like change this for my kids to be like, you know, I, my, my daughter holds everything in. And the other day she like cried and I'm and I just say, thank you. I said, to her, I'm like, thank you for crying. You know, like get that stuff out. Like you gotta get it out. So I don't know where yeah. that was coming from, what I was talking about, but <laughs> You know, like there is bravery. I think that's what I was saying. There's bravery in in living and listening to who who you are, like who you've been this whole time. Exactly. And saying yes to her, you know. That's right. And 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 I think one thing that I have enjoyed learning, and this this is an ongoing process, like I still let me finish the first thought before I lose it. Um, I've enjoyed learning that I can speak my truth without being damaging or, um, mm -hmm. you know, me saying what I need or want or what I think. I can learn to say those things in a way that aren't attacking. It's just, it just is. And kind of like being comfortable with letting the other person deal with that. There's, there's a story in my book called The Ring. And for me, The Ring story is like the most important story in the book mm. because it was this moment, I don't know if you remember it, but I had this ring of an old yes. boy. Oh, yes. It oh, was before God. we were, I can't remember if we were engaged yet or not. I think we weren't. But I had this boyfriend in high school. Is it okay if I tell this story? Is oh, time? yes. Oh, of course. Yeah, I love this was a very important story, I think. And this story just illustrates what I'm saying, that, that, that if I had listened to my truth in this story, then it would have forced the people around me to reckon with their own beliefs and thoughts mm -hmm. and make a decision. Right instead of me having to make a decision. So, so I had this ring, it was given to me by an old boyfriend, a very sweet guy that I dated for a couple of years. It wasn't a wildly, it was not, it was a very tame, hardly <laughs> sexual relationship because mm -hmm. various reasons it was. Um, and it was, I think he had wanted to marry me. So we were graduating and he gave me this ring. He didn't ask that, but I think he kind of wanted to solidify things because I was going to college. It was a very simple gold band and I ended up breaking up with him. And, but I kept wearing the ring because I just liked it. It was real gold. It was jewelry. I had no hard feelings for my relationship. It had been a very positive person in my life and the ring really represented this time in my life when I was really happy and very healthy. So 
I wore the ring just cause, and I had been wearing it for years and years, but I knew when I started dating Josh, that it was going to come up mm. because I knew he was, you know, he was from this world that was uncomfortable with boyfriends and girlfriends and all that. So when it came up, it, it, it did present a problem and I ended up getting confronted, not by him, but by my pastor's wife who he lived with. He lived with um, the pastor and his wife. So she confronted me about the ring. And I think I, he did ask me about it and I told him what I thought. And then, and then the next, you know, in the, the next time it came up, I was being confronted by my pastor's wife and she asked me to get rid of it. And I, I really struggled with this for, for several weeks because I just, the thing I say in my book is I struggled, but I don't think I was recognizing what it represented. Mm-hmm. What it represented was that the people around me were not comfortable with the past that I had. They were not comfortable with, I had divorced parents. I went to public school. I wasn't a virgin. And the ring reminded them of these things. Mm. And it really, their discomfort with it, it's not like I couldn't see why that might be a little uncomfortable. The problem was that no one was listening to me saying, you know, this is, this is just, and we were 24 and 25. We're pretty, pretty old by this time. Right. <laughs> Long story short, I want to keep the ring, but I end up compromising and I throw it into the ocean. And the point I'm getting to is I often think that that was a very decide that was a deciding point for me because it was a moment where I, I really let other people dictate who I was going to be moving forward. Yeah. It was a huge loss. Cause it was almost like I agreed and I would agree from this point forward to be this person that you want me to be. Yeah. And part of that is pretending like my past didn't exist. Yeah. So had I, had I just, had I stuck to my guns and said, I'm really sorry, but this ring doesn't mean this, what it means to you. It doesn't mean that for me. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to keep the ring. Then, as I said, it would have put it in their, you know, hands of what they were going to do. How are they going to think about me? Mm-hmm. The truth would have come up from that. But because yeah. I wasn't truthful with myself, I didn't demand truth from them. Mm. Yeah. We, and I said this in my book that you can't like present, you can't not, um, if you're not truthful with yourself and authentic with yourself and other people, you're not going to get authenticity back. And you can see that in the ring story. Yeah. I remember reading that and I was I, it was like I could visualize you, like how you wrote it, looking at this ring with this internal struggle of like, I love this ring. This is like a part of me. And then when I read that you threw it in the ocean, I was like, I felt like I was like reaching through to like catch it for you. No, I got it for you. Like, wow. You know, but I mean, that was like a really strong visual you know, to, to see that, like, yeah, I mean, because that's like, you're throwing it in the ocean. Like you're not getting that back. No. And it's funny. Like I never, I regretted it. I always didn't like that. I didn't, that I did that. Um, 
And, but it's funny, one of the interviewers said something I'd never really thought of before. And that was just like the imagery of a ring and how much in this culture mm-hmm. a ring symbolizes. Yeah. And I hadn't mm-hmm. thought of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's almost, this sounds weird. So I hope you can go with me on this. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Because so much of like what has come from Josh's book are purity rings. And here you had a ring that wasn't, that was not a purity ring, right? It's the opposite of the purity ring. It was saying, I've had, I had sex with this one guy, with this guy. Yeah. But it was also saying, and I'm okay with my sexuality and I'm okay with me. And this is pretty. And I like to feel pretty. And it's mine. Mm-hmm. It belongs to me. Mm-hmm. And it's important to me. Yeah. So it was like, if, yeah, I could see where they thought then it was a threat, but it wasn't, you know, I wonder I've, I've, after I read that, I was like, is she going to go buy herself a new gold ring? I don't think so. <laughs> My, you know, what's interesting is my dad actually bought me a ring after my divorce. He had said, I was thinking about your empty finger. And so he had a beautiful ring designed for me. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's got three, six little tiny diamonds and it's, and I think it's a ruby in the, in the center. That was really sweet. That is so thoughtful. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I love your dad. (laughs) It really was. So I've got, I've got my dad's, my dad's gift on my, on that finger. That's awesome. Well, I want to ask you what I ask all of my guests. What story are you reframing today? Today? Wow. Okay. I think I know I am reframing that, um, it still goes back to courage. I'm reframing the idea, you know, that I am to, to this, to that, to this, to that, that I cannot do my dream. There's still this, I don't know what it is, but it's like, it's still there. And Mm -hmm. I constantly have to fight this, you know, back in high school, it was like, I'm too afraid to go to New York. And now it's like, well, you're too old to do this now. (laughs) There's always some reason why, fear is there. So I'm reframing the idea that my fear is going to control me, that Mm. it's, that it can't be conquered or that I, that, um, that it's mad, that it matters. It's fine for me to do this dream afraid. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And you have so many of us going, do it. You got this. <laughs> the, the funny thing about my book, before we go, is that the original title was actually called Braver Things. Braver and, Things. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. I don't know if you remember the preface was all about fear. And so I really wrote most of the book thinking the title was going to be Braver Things. I ended up making that the last chapter title. Oh, interesting. Um, but because of um, Brene Brown and there's already been a lot of books on bravery, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's why we changed the title. But I don't know. I just think it's an interesting because the theme of fear has been something that has really carried 
with yeah. me. And it's something I still have to work to fight against today. Mm-hmm. But I learned that, that my fear does. It's gigantic before you step, you have to step through it. And then all of a sudden, as you step through your fear, that's when it shrinks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what I, when I talk to people about hard things and it's also, I, for the record, I just want to say that all of this stuff I do is also a lesson to me because I'm teaching myself as I go through, but you know, that book, you're going on a bear hunt. Yeah. So you know how it says like, you can't go over it. You can't go under it. You have to go through it. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. tell people how wise that book is because for us to get what we really need and desire, we have to go through the things. And sometimes it's hurtful and we cry and it's painful, but yeah, we also get, get the better parts on the other side, you know? There's good things on the other side of those. Mm-hmm. Listening to ourselves and being courageous and being authentic. Mm-hmm. Well, I listened to your YouTube video before I got on with you videos. of you singing. So I know your voice is beautiful and I see so many good things for you. So I am cheering you on from Thank you so much. this corner of California <laughs> so, <laughs> for sure. So you are pursuing this career in performing arts. Is there anything that you want to talk about with that? Where people can find you, they can support you. Yeah. Um, I don't have a great way for people to support me yet. I'd love to <laughs> love to get that button <laughs> set up on my website. Um, but they can follow me on Spotify. I released music um, quite some time ago because the book really took me several years plus COVID happened. So there's been a big wall. Um, Follow me on Instagram. I have a website and follow me on Instagram. That's kind of where I put most of my fun stuff. I'm I'm hoping to work more. um, I'm hoping to consistently put out more music and singing. And I'm also thinking about writing a one woman musical comedy. So I'm hoping shape my career more, um, more in the direction of comedy and bringing some levity to the music and the perform performance, but I have to write that. So (laughs) (laughs) well, that sounds fun. Shannon, I just really appreciate you and your vulnerability and your willingness to do the braver thing and write about your world for us to learn from. So thank you. Thank you for having me, Kara. This was a wonderful discussion and I'm really glad you're doing the work that you're doing. I think it's really important. Yeah, thank you so much.